Hello and welcome to another episode of D&D Smart Talks. I'm Claren Mart is the host of the show and today we have among us Dr. Abraham Cordman, the geneticist uh, and a postdoctoral fellow at Princeton. Welcome to this podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm I'm glad to be here. So Abraham, could you tell us about what you do, what your research is about and basically what do you do? What do I do? Okay, yeah, I am a geneticist by training. I have a doctorate in genetics. I'm I am a biologist, and mm-hmm. I'm you know, broadly interested in how you go about making an animal, because we're all animals. We all start off with one, as one cell, and you are not now one cell. You are not a giant amoeba. So you have to make a lot of cells. They all have to end up in the right place. They all have to do the right thing. This is a really complicated problem, and uh, I tend to attack those problems using a combination of genetic engineering and microscopy. And everything else that I do sort of flows from these sort of approaches and questions that I'm interested in, right? So uh, that, I think, sort of describes who I am and what I do. I was there at your defense and um, was very surprised by the fact that I understood what you presented. It involved a lot of machine learning. And is that normal for you? Do you work with computer science or any other field other than bio? Is that something you do on a daily basis? Uh, it is certainly something that I do on a daily basis. It's not necessarily something that we all do on a daily basis. But yes, I have jokingly described myself as a biologist who pretends to be a computer scientist. That is certainly true. A lot of the work that I do, so, so as I said, you know, I, I tend to attack problems with microscopy, right? And so a microscope, is, the job of the microscope is to make, the sm- to make small things look big with light a lie that I stole from a friend, but it's a good lie. And when we do that, we collect that light using a camera, and we're taking taking images of something. In, in my case now, it's a developing mouse embryo. Uh, when I was working at Stony Brook in my PhD, it was a tiny little nematode worm. But what comes out of this then is an image of the developing animal. And we highlight different regions that we're interested in in the animal using fluorescence. So you shine one color of light on the animal and you get a different color of light out. And that different color of light is collected by the camera. And so you get an image of just the specific portion of the animal that you care about. And what we will typically do is we'll highlight different subcellular domains, different parts of cells that we care about. The classic thing is the nucleus. So the nucleus uh, is where you hold your genetic information. And every cell has one. So they serve as a fantastic fiducial marker for the location of the cell. You can segment the nucleus, you know where the cell is, more or less. Right? When we have large amounts of information, we can either go through this information by hand and draw a circle around the nucleus of the cell. Mm-hmm. in every plane, every single Z plane that we collect, every single time point, and sometime around hour 10 of that, you go, um, there has to be a better way. And so maybe I'm lazy, but I like to automate away that sort of time. You know? I, I want to not have to draw circles and, uh, and, and go through large data sets by hand. It's, it's very time consuming, and I can only be so accurate for so long. Uh, so that is where I think the computer science approaches come from. Yeah. yeah. So that's cool. So you said you work with Z-Stacks. That means it's all in 3D. Everything's in 3D, yeah. So, so as I say, I'm a biologist who tends to be a computer scientist, right? 
And I know that in, in the broader computer vision field, there are only a couple of times where you actually get three-dimensional information back, right? And one of those is LIDAR, right? Uh, mm -hmm. these, these laser rays finding techniques. You don't really even get that for radar, right? But you get that for, for microscopes, right? So we have a whole bunch of different exciting ways of uh, illuminating the sample and collecting light from specific parts of the sample. And the practical upshot is there's a whole bunch of different ways that we can optically section the sample skin. So, if you, so if you, when you were in high school, right, and you looked at a piece of onion skin under a microscope, you got a thin section of that sample. So you chopped it up with a knife or just peeled back the onion skin, right? And one of the problems with doing that to an animal is it kills them. <laughs> so you, you, can't, you can't take a knife to an animal and expect it to develop into a happy adult, right? Into a developing animal. So what you have to do is you have to come up with a way of doing this in a non-destructive way, in, in, a, in a way that doesn't damage them or make them unhappy. So a non-perturbing, use the jargon, uh, method, right? And so we do this with light. Um, and there's a couple of different techniques that are used. One of them is called confocal microscopy. It's called light sheet microscopy. And they really just collect and they either illuminate a single plane and then collect light from that Z plane. And then you move that Z plane around. So you collect different slices for the sample optically, or you throw away out of focus light. Both of those things result in relatively thin optical sections. So we live in the world of the voxel rather than the world of the pixel in microscopy. Not everyone who is a microscopist does that. A lot of people work in model systems that are simpler, but if you want to do developmental biology, the vast majority of developing animals are three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. um, even flatworms are still three-dimensional. <laughs> yeah. So instead of actually cutting the animal, you're just optically slicing. Or optically slicing, yeah. So it's it's like if you if you've um, uh, if you had a CT scan or an MRI, right, and you know you can you get a, a 3D reconstructed volume from that. It's it's a relatively similar process in that we collect individual slices of of light. Uh, although neither well, X, uh, CT actually does use light; it uses high energy light, but MRI does not. But the resulting data type and information type is relatively similar to that that is used in biomedical imaging. Um, Basically, it's an MRI for the mouse or the worm. They actually, they, they don't make an MRI for the worm, but they do make MRIs for mice, tiny, or micro CTs for mice, yeah. They're enormous machines with a tiny little hole for the mouse. It's, it's great. Like the mice have a hospital. <laughs> mice do have, a, yes. Uh, this was, so I, as I said, I, you know, I used to work with nematode worms, and these are um, millimeter long, clear animals. They're you know, about the thickness of a human hair. They, they eat bacteria. They don't have eyes. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, what, you, what happens when you have a sick worm mm -hmm. is you get another worm. Okay. When you have a sick mouse, you take really good care of that mouse and hope it gets better. Because the, when, you, when you can work with the individual animal, you have to work with the individual animal and you take very good care of them. So we do, if you want to study developing animals, you have to work in animals. But we, we do take, we do go to very, very great lengths to take very, very good care of, of our model systems. They definitely are better cared for than I am. <laughs> well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I don't, I don't have a staff veterinarian in my house, right? I don't have, I don't have a staff. I don't live with a physician, so. <laughs> well, I hope you don't need to. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> going back to the previous point uh, you yes. mentioned automation and you also mentioned precision why is it that you use computer science or let's be more specific why do you use machine learning do you use it for automation or do you use it for precision that's a really good question i i think when we when you have the human do a repetitive task the human's accuracy decreases with time and so my actual answer to you is both. <laughs> you, you, you do this. I, I do this one because I don't want to do this by hand because I'm because I'm lazy, right? And I also do this because I don't want to have my precision decrease as I go through the samples. And so the answer actually is is both. We 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 want to we want to go faster. We want to have the human. We want to not dedicate expensive human time to tasks that don't need expensive human time. And we want to be more precise than the human can be. So we actually want to do all of the above. I, I think um, that that's not necessarily why we go the machine learning route. So much as why we go the the computer vision route, right? Uh, I think the the reason that so I, I think this sort of gets into perhaps one of the broader trends in the computer vision field, uh, at least as I see it coming from the microscopy side of things. So when I started working on um, optical microscopy tasks that I was interested in optimizing uh, or uh, automating uh, would have been, I, I think, in about 2015. And so I went, okay, so how can I go get training in this? And I went and took a course at the Marine Biological Laboratory of Woods Hole, which is one of the, uh, I'd say they're, they're one of the premier institutions for training biologists in the professional setting. So they're, they offer professional level courses. They're the thing that you go to if you're a PI or you're a postdoc and you want to learn a new technique or skill. So that is what the MBL does. So I went and took their course on automated image processing. And uh, I had some fantastic uh, teachers there who taught me mostly the, the classic methods of image processing. You know, I, I had steerable filters, you know, uh, which is a lovely paper from 1991. I learned how watershed works, which is a lovely paper from 1979. These techniques work extremely well, especially considering how old they are. There are definitely situations where the classical techniques still work incredibly well, but as the complexity of the sample increases, the number of different parameters you have to manage and the ability to ability to take a model that you build where you combine a bunch of filters together to segment an image. When you want to transfer that between different microscopes or even different cameras on the same microscope, the answer will be no. And so for every imaging session you do, and for every different, subtly different sample, you have to redo all of your optimization of your parameters. And that really sucks. So one of the things that came up with this course, and this actually was the last year that this course on classical image segmentation was offered. And today they offer one on uh, machine learning and image processing. So it's convolutional neural networks and you, the course, which is fantastic. And yes, I will try to take that one. <laughs> um, is uh, that we had a, a person come in from a research institute uh, on uh, the West Coast called the Allen Institute of Cell Science. And one of the, they, they have a broad interest in understanding all of cell biology. And so they attack problems in a similar way to the way that I do, where you genetically engineer a model system to fluoresce, and then you image it. They mostly work in tissue culture. And the, the gentleman who gave, basically gave a, an invited lecture at this course said, 
the way of the future is to segment these images and to process this data with convolutional neural networks. And he gave a 45 minute talk and then there were about 90 minutes of back and forth questions many of which were from me, and he was a very good sport. Uh, but I, at the end of the day, I, I definitely came away from that convinced that the neural networks outperformed the classical methods in most contexts, that you could effectively train a neural network to perform an image segmentation task almost as well as a human, and that these convolutional networks, convolutional neural networks, I'm sorry, are, are able to perform, provide human-like annotation of data. And that human-like annotation makes the biologists very, it tends to make biologists much more comfortable, right? Because for biologists and for biologists who do microscopy, we want to look at the sample and see what it looks like, right? That's the first question is, what does this look like? Do I believe what I, because I believe what I see. And so if, if the annotation looks human-like, right, um, we, uh, like uh, we like it, yes. <laughs> and, and so when I present, you know, automated image segmentation work to biologists, what I will do is I will show a picture of raw data, and then I will show two panels, one of which is the human and one of which is computer annotation. And I will say to the audience, which is which? And about 60% of the time they get say the computer is the human and the human is the computer. But that's the point where I go, okay, I think we're in good shape and, <laughs> and we can go from there. Um, so this is this is pretty good. There have been like a lot of tools. So you did mention the classical methods, the neural networks, which are very popular these days. And yeah. I'm sure these also have been incorporated into other tools. Um, like earlier during our conversation, we spoke about image processing softwares. Um, yeah, a little bit offline. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they have newer plugins, which does the neural networks for you or the deep learning for you. Yes. Uh, how have you seen these tools evolve? You said you started in 2015 and from 2015 yeah. to now, I'm sure a lot has changed. Yeah, there, there was, um, when I started in 2015, and I, and I will say, do not quote me on this because I have not, I haven't necessarily done an exhaustive review of exactly when I started and what existed at the time. But from my perspective, when I started out doing this, almost all of the tools that were available, at least those that were publicly available and available for free, uh, were classical methods. They certainly may have used a machine learning approach. So there certainly um, were tools out there which would use classical filter banks. And so you would have user specified filters, like you'd have a Gaussian and Plossian to Gaussian type filters, or, uh, you know, Hessian uh, derivative to Gaussian gradients, that sort of stuff, the classical image processing filters. And then you would have weights, and those weights would be managed by weights of the different filters be managed, weights of the filters, the average of the filters be managed by some sort of an optimizing function, usually some sort of like random forest optimizer, which is uh, one of the better known pieces of free image processing software out there is called Elastic. And that is what the classical methods in Elastic, the, the older versions of Elastic were using. And over the past few years, I want to say, from it, it, this is again, sort of by recollection, I want to say roughly 2019, 2018 is when we started to see the first tools that really used machine learning that became user-friendly enough for the average biologists to, average biologists or convolutional, convolutional neural network methods that were friendly enough for more or less the average biologist to use. If I remember correctly, the, the paper that described uh, UNET, there was a paper that described a, a plugin for a very common piece of 
uh, microscopy and just sort of general scientific image processing called Fiji. So there's this which is uh, ImageJ, which started off at the NIH in like 1995 and is a piece of software that every microscopist probably has on their computer. It's sort of the free, I need to open this image, what am I going to use? I'm going to use Fiji. Everyone uses Fiji. <laughs> it has support for basically every file type and it costs you zero dollars to use, which is why it's on everyone's computer. And there is now a PG plugin that implements UNet and allows you to essentially train a neural network and receive inferences in an environment that the average biologist will find comfortable. And so what you're saying is that these tools have just become easier for average biologists to use. They have, they have. Yeah, I would prefer just clicking a few buttons than writing pages of code. Yes, that's yeah. certainly true, yeah. yeah. But even though the tools have incorporated uh, neural networks and other algorithms, you still used or you still hard-coded your PhD. Uh, so I didn't hard-code mine. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a collaborator who, who hard-coded it. So the uh, uh, I actually worked with uh, a computer scientist. Um, so as I said, I, I'm a computer, I'm a, I'm a biologist who, who pretends to be a computer scientist, right? Uh, and so I speak computer science. I'm I'm a competent programmer. I'm a good programmer for a biologist, right? Which means I'm a competent programmer when measured against other programmers, right? And so I, I speak computer scientist and I communicate well with computer, computer scientists. And this is a very useful skill to have as a biologist. So when, when we were putting together, well, what, what's interesting is like the amount of time that it takes or took from the point at which I started doing the image processing stuff to, it was about two years later that the, a year and a half, two years later is when that paper describing the, the uh, Fiji UNet plugin came out. <laughs> so part of why I was using a, a hard-coded neural network to do my image segmentation during my, my PhD work is because it, uh, it was what was available at the time. And we actually used an off-the-shelf pre-trained neural network that had been, you know, set up to segment satellite data. Uh, this it was set up to segment buildings uh, from satellite data, which meant that it started off knowing what an image was. And so we didn't actually have to provide it all that much training data. So it was actually only about a week of generating training data for me to get a neural network that could segment my, my worm nuclei pretty accurately. As, as for sort of why I ended up using, so I, I, went, I went to this course that taught me the classical methods in image segmentation, right? And then I, I came back and I, I went and did the neural networks. I went the neural networks route with a collaborator, right? And part of why this happened is because the opportunity for collaboration presented itself. And uh, it is, I think for biologists, a really good idea to collaborate with actual computer scientists. Even even if you're you know a fake one, you should you should probably. Uh, no, I mean I, I actually I actually do write a substantial amount of code. I probably spend about fifty percent of my time working as a computer scientist. But, uh, <laughs> I, I joke, but no, I I think the 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 opportunity to collaborate with computer scientists is is very very helpful and uh, uh, programming and these sorts of projects uh, go better when we admit that they're a team sport. Sure. Um, 
So I, you know, I, there was an opportunity to establish a collaboration with the research group at Study Breaking, so we did. Um, and so rather than sitting down and writing a classic approach, I started working with someone who had background in neural networks. And so that is sort of how that decision occurred. And I was very happy with the results of that segmentation method. So uh, there was no need to change anything. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Things fit in perfectly for you. Yeah, they, they went very well. I guess I wouldn't be wrong in saying that you're an exception, not a standard in bio. Uh, yeah, actually, that's that's a really good a really good question, right? So um, I am certainly the exception rather than the rule in terms of having the computer science background. So I uh, <laughs> so another way of putting this is, hey Abraham, why why do you do computer science despite being a biologist, right? And um, Oddly enough, I think part of why this happened in, in my case is because I essentially can't write by hand. <laughs> so uh, from a pretty young age, I've had to work with computers to generate any sort of text output that I need. And so all through school, I had to spend large amounts of time working with computers. So I was very comfortable with them. And so I started to, I took a, a bit of computer science in high school. I learned how to program. Um, and then uh, in college, I had the opportunity to take um, a bioinformatics course. And bioinformatics is uh, sort of the, the broader process, the broader uh, field of uh, just simply processing the vast quantities of data that are generated by various types of life sciences studies, um, typically uh, studies of genetic sequencing information. So anytime uh, you have... Uh, Anytime, anytime you want to know uh, something like, for example, why you have a particular cancer, genetic sequencing or similar techniques are used at this point in time. So, so these are sort of very important techniques in life sciences. So I took that sort of coursework and then I ended up getting a job as a summer researcher in a computational neuroscience lab, which initially I got through the, the magical uh, process of nepotism. And then I actually did a good job. No, it's true. <laughs> you know, I, I got hired by a family friend to basically build them a database, like copying data onto a server. And then I showed up and I did my job and I did it well. And so then I got offered a research position. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, you can teach people to do research, but you can't teach them to show up and do their job. <laughs> so I did. Uh, and so I learned to I learned to program in MATLAB at that point in time, and I learned some signal processing um, techniques. And I sort of had the realization that um, uh, while my math is not necessarily the best, in that you know I have calculus two and statistics, I don't have to be able to be the I don't have to be the person who's you know, solving the equations to figure out what the formula is. I need to be able to write the six lines of code that implement that formula, right? I don't need to be able to mathematically prove that the formula that I'm writing is correct. That's not my job. My job is to apply that model, apply the information and make the computer do the math. And as long as the computer can do the math, I can do it. So there, there's sort of, uh, it's not um, necessarily the most common thing in life science, uh, at least in 
shall we say my generation? <laughs> no. <laughs> so I, I, I finished my doctor. I, I, I graduated from college in 2013. I defended my doctorate in uh, 2020. And here at Princeton, uh, every single one of the grad students in the department that I'm in, which is molecular biology, has to take a course where they learn how to program. So there is going to be sort of a push over the next decade or so in the life sciences as uh, basic computer science skills become more and more necessary simply to do your job as a biologist, to educate, to educate biologists to have at least a rudimentary or working knowledge of computer science. So while I am the exception rather than the rule right now, watch this space, come back in 10 years, and everyone will at least know, be able to write 10 lines of Python. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I'm gonna say that uh, it's changing. It's changing really quickly. I don't think in the future. Uh, I've actually seen this not just in bio, but almost every field. Like everybody is learning computer science, or at least learning to write basic code. Yep. What do you recommend to someone who's starting right now, who is not into computer science, or basically who's not into engineering, and who has no experience? Ah. How do they get started? Because I'm sure it's hard for someone who has no background in coding to get started with it. Yes, this is a great question and one that I actually get asked really frequently. And what I say to that person is, what do you want to do? Find a problem that you need to solve, right? And uh, computer science and, and coding techniques are essentially a hammer. They're a tool that you can use to solve a problem. And uh, I will also say that Yes, it is true, and this is a truism. The best line of code is the one you don't write. And so if you can solve that problem without using computer science, okay, without using computer science and without forming massive Excel spreadsheets, because then you should be doing the computer science, uh, <laughs> the, uh, then, then, then it's time to start considering learning to code. And the answer is going to depend on what you want to do. And the other question I get asked frequently is, what programming language should I learn? And the answer is, well, you probably should learn Python <laughs> is, is the actual correct answer right now, I feel. Um, and I say that as a person who writes mostly in MATLAB. <laughs> um, but you should probably, if you're going to pick one language and just learn one language, it should be Python. Yeah, I yeah. think with some background in uh, programming, I would say any one language is good. So as yep. long as you know how to program, Coding is just knowing the syntax, but the bigger thing is knowing what to do or right. basically problem solving. That's more important. Yes. Knowing how to Google the question. Yes. <laughs> 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 the computer scientists are professional Googlers. No, uh, this, is, this is what I've been told anyway. Again, I pretend to be one. The, <laughs> that's true. No, uh, you can literally I, I Google a lot. Work for anything. Yeah. You yeah. find snippets of code and you just need to know how to put them together and stitch right. them together. Exactly right. Have your whole software. And and you have to, and, and there's going to be an extended period of banging your head against the wall. <laughs> um, and I have good news and bad news. The good news is eventually you'll solve the problem. And the bad news is it will keep being like that. <laughs> but but uh, one of the things that I, I find very nice about, one of the things I, that I personally enjoy about computer science is 
uh, doing the doing the programming is when you get the thing to actually work, it feels really great. Which <laughs> um, is a little rare. <laughs> it is a little rare, yes. But but when it happens, it's it's great, you know. Um, and I think there's uh, uh, there, there's always the uh, thinking programmatically can be very helpful in the life sciences. I, I can certainly say that you what you what you learn to do is you learn to tackle a problem and then take that problem apart into its constituent components that are easier to solve and then solve each individual constituent components independently and then reassemble them into a solution and you can use that same sort of approach to tackle all sorts of problems in life sciences including your research questions right yeah right because you know we when when i when i say to you you know i'm broadly interested in how you assemble an animal I can't study that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, you cannot do that. I'm that's 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 at least another PhD, man. <laughs> I no that 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 is an entire field, right? Yeah. There are tens of thousands of people who can describe their research that way. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we work on a very small part of that problem. So uh, also uh, when talking about computer science and like different fields especially as in bio or any other field, AI machine learning often like keeps coming up. And of course, these are buzzwords and um, you mm. already mentioned that you just need to know how to use the model, but you don't really know need to know the math behind it. Right. This is, again, the same question as before. How do you know where to start from? Because these are big words and uh, especially in machine learning, things keep changing a lot. They do. What's commonly used today is not going to be commonly used in a year. It's going to be yeah. very different. So in, how do you... We're sort of at this inflection point where things are, are changing really, really, really rapidly right now. Yeah. And uh, I will say in a few years, it will stabilize and it will be a whole lot easier to approach this because there will be a correct answer. On um, What do I start with? Okay, it will be the perfect net uh, image segmentation system is the one you should use. Okay. Well, it doesn't exist yet, but give it a few years and there will be a correct answer. Uh, where do I start? I, again, I, I'd say find a problem you need to solve and then figure out a way to attack that problem using tools that you can, that are available, accessible, and that you understand, right? Um, I, I will also say that the best advice, I can, the really best advice I can find is if that seems too daunting to you, Find someone who you can work with and bother incessantly for help. Go and go and like the advice to biologists is, hey, you may or may not work in a life sciences field that is extremely collaborative, but computer scientists are extremely collaborative. The um, uh, computer scientists and people who do image processing work, they need data. You need a model. You can be friends. Right, you, you, there are entire research laboratories at your institution that would be very happy to have some data from you and have an application to test their latest, greatest model on. And that sort of collaboration can be very productive for you because you will get a product you can use and some research out of that. And it will be very productive for them because they are going to be able to put out at least one computer science paper in, in their favorite, type of uh, computer science journal or an IEEE if they're an engineer, 
And uh, these, collaborative, these collaborative sorts of research projects can be very, very helpful. The primary challenge is that you guys speak different languages. And um, this is where someone like me who can speak both comes in handy. And finding someone in your lab or recruiting someone to your lab who is conversant in computer science and can attack a computer science problem or at least communicate the biological problem in terms that a computer scientist can understand is very helpful. In terms of how do you get to the point as a computer scientist where you can understand what the biologists are talking about? God, I don't know. <laughs> you know, we. Yeah, I was hoping to get some answer. <laughs> oh yeah, no. Um, so uh, actually, no. This is this is actually an honestly is honestly a really a, a very good question, right? Because um, life sciences is extremely jargon rich. And I mean, I, I've been doing this for many years and I don't know all of the jargon. <laughs> Wikipedia is a fantastic resource. Uh, it will also be full of jargon. The, uh, the, 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 I, don't, I don't have a very good answer uh, other than ask a lot of questions. And uh, one of the things that you will find is that there will be someone that you're working with who seems approachable and friendly and will be happy to spend two hours with you as many times as you need in order to get a grasp of what the actual biology is doing. One of the things that happens, particularly at research universities, right, is that a bunch of people in that lab teach, <laughs> and they probably teach the courses on, this, on the stuff that they're working on, and they're probably very good at explaining it in a, in a clear way. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, Wikipedia is a good resource. So I, I have a friend who recently, who's a computational linguist, who recently was hired to do uh, some work in uh, immunology. And as she's sort of made that transition, I've gotten a lot of questions about what is this biology and how does it work? And I've been willing to explain that to her. And so, you know, you fi find a friend, make friends. Um, coffee is a fantastic bribe, works great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and looks for everyone. <laughs> and if you don't understand something, you can ask. It's it's fine. We're we're, we're we tend to be we tend to actually be friendly. And I mean, if if you find if you if you find yourself collaborating with a biologist who's not friendly, get a, get another biologist. I mean, there, there's a lot of us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was wonderful. Um, but I think I have I have one other piece of advice, which is that there's a standard textbook for life sciences that is sort of the standard high school biology textbook. And it's called Campbell Reese. You can buy an ancient copy of it off of Amazon for seven bucks. And yeah, biology is changing all the time, but in terms of like basic jargon, it'll have, it has glossaries, it has pictures. It's, it's a fantastic resource. And uh, I'm not saying you need to go to Amazon, buy this book that I'm not sponsoring here. Uh, what I'm saying to you is, Every research laboratory is probably going to have a copy and they'll be happy to hand it to you because, again, it costs them $7 on Amazon, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. Before we close, just one last thing. I think you did give a lot of recommendations, but is there anything you want to say to our audience that I haven't really asked you yet? Oh, no, I didn't think about this one in <laughs> advance. I think, honestly, my the, the, the real 
takeaway advice here is we're currently sort of at this inflection point for bioimage analysis and for computer science in biology in general. And this is a very exciting time in the field. And what that means is, yes, things are continuously changing all the time. Yes, there are papers coming out literally every day. But that also means that there's a lot of attention, focus, and funding. And if you are, for example, an engineer coming up right now and you are going, what do I do after college? I don't know what I want to do, but I would like to earn a living so that I can eat. <laughs> or you're interested in, you know, biological questions at some level. You don't have to be a bioengineer to come and do computer science or engineering in a life sciences lab. And they will pay you to do it. I can't tell you the pay will be very good, uh, but they will pay you to do it, right? And uh, there, there are certainly opportunities in research labs to come and do life sciences research and to facilitate life sciences research. There are positions in core facilities. So large research institutions tend to have shared resources, like there will be a microscopy core where all of those really expensive microscopes live and someone is in charge of that. And they have lots of data they have to manage. And a lot of institutions now have core facilities that will help you do image processing or data processing. Those positions exist. And pharmaceutical companies and other biotech companies also need computer scientists who are willing to do biology. And there are two sources of those. There are people like me who are biologists who pretend to be computer scientists. And then there are people like some of my friends who are computer scientists, mathematicians, electrical engineers, physicists who do some biology as well. And uh, you don't need to be afraid to consider to be one of those people. Consider this as a possible career choice. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good ad thank you i i uh i yes uh put me out of a job yes please do no and and we're sort of at a point right now where this is going to become a necessity in every single research context where there is so much data and uh we need people to process manage handle and, and otherwise deal with it yep so collaboration survey and yeah you have to be collaborative otherwise you One do. person cannot specialize in everything. That's right. Yeah, uh, I, I think the way you make a well-rounded research group is you get a lot of really pointy people. Mm -hmm. yeah, it, yeah, all of us are trained for many years to do extremely highly specialized tasks. And the number of people who do a bunch of different things is, is exceedingly rare. And you are not expected to be like, like if you're if you're being hired as a as a computer scientist to come and help them deal with their data management issues in the lab, guess what? They love that you can program. They're much more interested in the fact that you can program and that you can help them deal with their problem than whether or not you understand the intrinsic biology. And hey, if you get excited about a biological problem and you want to do some life sciences research, they're they'll be thrilled to teach you how to do it. Yeah, typically. Typically, I do have, I, I suppose I have a, this again, I, you, I do have a cautionary note, right? Which is some research groups, um, while they tend to be very collaborative 
internally with other members of the research group and perhaps other members of the department. You may or may not be able to talk about the data that they're collecting or what exactly they're researching outside of that research group. And this is, I think, much more of an issue in the life sciences than it is computer science. Thanks a lot for doing this. It was such a valuable session. Yeah, it was, it was great to be here. Lots of fun. And last but not the least, like, share, and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at DND Smart Labs. That's all letters because Instagram doesn't believe in the ampersand. Unlike Discord, where we are at D ampersand D Smart Labs. And Discord is a collaborative space where geeks like to hang out. <laughs> that was fun. Thanks a lot. <laughs> sure thing. Well, see you guys next week. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.